It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. If money affects your life in any way, Money Making Sense will talk about it. Be financially healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's your host, Heather Kelly. Welcome to Money Making Sense, the show that talks about all things money. Today, we're talking about medications. First of all, why are so many doctors just giving out drugs like it's candy? Joining me today is Angela Peacock. She's a former Army sergeant. And she's the subject of the film that we're going to talk about today. I also have the co-director and co-producer, Lynn Cunningham, of Medicating Normal. And this is a PBS special, which a lot of people can see right now on their local PBS stations. So welcome, Angie and Lynn. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks, Heather. Angie, I think I will start with you since you are one of the subjects of this PBS special called Medicating Normal. In the film, you talk about because you had PTSD, you would go to a doctor and say, hey, look, I'm stressed out. Things are happening. And the first thing they did is just, oh, here, just take a whole bunch of drugs and you'll be just fine. But you weren't just fine. Why did you feel you needed the medication to start with? Well, I didn't know medication was going to be the first thing offered. But really what happened was I was in Baghdad at the very beginning of the war. I suffered a near-fatal illness that they still don't really know what it was, probably just bad water, the toxins, the stress, the environment, all of that. I was medically evacuated home to Germany at the time, and the next day my convoy got hit, and then I saw one of my soldiers come back that was injured. So just that compound of trauma, I just couldn't hang, I couldn't hang on. Like I was like, I can't take anything, any more bad news. I'm just feeling out of control. So I walked down the hallway to the psychiatry office because I was always taught that that's where you go when you need help, when you're having mental health concerns. And I just said, I'm having a really hard time adjusting. You know, my soldier just got injured and I almost died and I don't know what to do. And then it was, here's a prescription for clonopin. You're going to, you know, it'll, it'll help you. And that was that there was really no, um, that's kind of how this whole thing started. So once you started taking it, did it help you at all? I started feeling worse pretty quickly. But then the scary part was when I would report, I'm feeling worse. Like now I'm having panic attacks every day and I can't sleep and I'm scared of noises. Then, then I was told those are symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. This is what you have instead of maybe you're having an adverse reaction to the medication. And Lynn, I'm going to move to you because this is what the subject of the film is, is people being prescribed medications that are supposed to help them but they actually are having worse problems because of the medication than they were without the medication. Yes, that that is what the film is essentially about. It's about a mental health crisis, we think. Um, it, we, we have a sort of drug-centered approach to all things uh, related to mental health. And this is fine. There are many, many people who do well on their drugs. But what we believe and the reason we tell this, believe this film is very important, is that 
many, many people are harmed and made worse by the drugs they take. And these drugs are antidepressants. They are anti-anxieties called benzodiazepines. They are stimulants. They are sleeping pills. And not everyone does well on them. And this is what our film is about. For years, we've heard about the antidepressant. I can't remember the exact one, but people would be given this antidepressant because they're depressed and maybe they're even thinking about suicide. Even people who weren't thinking of suicide, there's like, you know what? I'm just feeling down. I'm depressed. And so the doctors just throw this antidepressant at them. And the next thing you know, they've killed themselves. Yeah. And Heather, that's kind of what happened to me that I started getting worse. And then it was, okay, well, now you need an antidepressant and now you need a sleep medication and now you need something for your headaches. So it's, it's one drug becomes two, becomes three, becomes five. And I ended up on 18 at the same time and like short of like two years. But then, so there's this, so, and I actually, I definitely struggled with the suicide part. So instead of thinking, oh, the drug could be causing the suicidal thoughts, it's a black box warning issued by the FDA that's on the drug pamphlet. Doctors don't seem to think that that's a real thing or and patients aren't educated that it is a real thing. So it's not let's take the drug away that could be the offender. It's let's add another drug because you are suicidal and you really are mentally ill and need help. Was it the same doctor that prescribed you all 18 drugs? At that time, it was two. It was one in the VA system and doctors don't like to take away drugs that another doctor prescribed and they don't like to... They So basically, they both co-signed off of each other, like that these are okay to take. So they both knew that the other drugs were being prescribed, and yet each of them kept giving more drugs on top of that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it is very, very common. And it is part of why we allude to this this narrative as an epidemic, because often, it is very often the case that a, dr a new drug is prescribed to treat a side effect from uh, the first drug, and that becomes like a cascading prescription. More, we call it polypharmacy. So it's it's very very common, and every subject in the film experienced that to a different to a certain degree. Maybe one, maybe Shalimar uh, in the film did not, but everyone else did. I'm not on the drugs, and I'm I'm not a pharmacist or anything, but I've seen the studies that say. For every drug that you add to other drugs you're taking, the side effects increase fivefold. So if you have, you take one drug and maybe you're only getting one or two side effects, but you add another one on top of that, now it's going to be 15 different side effects you have because it's increased fivefold. Then you add a third drug on top of that and whatever five times 15 is. Mm -hmm. If I know that information, why aren't the doctors paying attention to this and asking questions? I think a lot of doctors are well-meaning and they want to help their patients. And we think that's really important in the showing of this film that we're not trying to malign doctors. This, this scenario exists in the giant picture of our entire society where we turn to a pill. It's called the quick fix mentality and it's often cheaper and easier to take a medication. And doctors have talked to us about how how frustrating it is when they suggest an alternative approach or holding off. And then a patient gets very frustrated and does something like doctor shopping. Well, forget that doctor. They're not going to give me medication. I'll go on to a next. So I, I we, we've been very careful not to blame doctors. Um, that said, the studies are not there that 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 show any kind of efficacy or safety when 
these huge giant polypharmacy scenarios exist. So the studies are not there. And I think as a society, we need to be more aware of that. We do need to take a break. When we come back, I want to go into the pharmacy part of this. And I think I want to go more into what their role is in educating doctors. So we'll be right back with Angie Peacock. She is a former Army sergeant and subject of the film Medicating Normal. And we also have Lynn Cunningham, who is the co-director and co-producer of Medicating Normal, which is a special on PBS. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Money Making Sense, the show that affects your life in any way, money-wise. We're talking about it. And today we're talking about over-medicating. This is part of a PBS special airing now in many locations called Medicating Normal. I have joining me Lynn Cunningham, who is the co-director and co-producer of Medicating Normal, and also Angie Peacock. She is a former Army sergeant and one of the subjects of this film. In that last segment, we discussed doctors trying to help their patients. And, and again, we're not trying to blame doctors for the whole situation. But I think in the film, you alluded to, this is how I perceived it in the film, when you talked about drug companies actually going into the medical schools to talk to the doctors about their different drugs that they have. And it seems to me almost like these companies are lobbying. They are going into medical schools and lobbying their product to people who are going to become doctors. Yes, in particular, definitely medical schools receive large swaths of funding from pharmaceuticals. And these issues are not being taught, at least from our perspective, the way we feel they should be. But the pharmaceuticals also fund the studies about whether or not these drugs are nowadays, they are primarily, these studies are primarily funded by pharmaceuticals who are the ones that will be profiting from the success of a particular drug. So, um, there, there is, there is an inherent conflict of interest about the way the studies are run, what the studies are actually comparing. Um, they're often comparing two different drugs, a new one and an old one. I don't think there's ever been a study of no drug versus a drug. So market, there are market forces that are pushing the sales of these drugs on, on every level of society. Yeah. Cause it's big business. It is yeah. multi trillion dollar business for these companies. And 
I did not realize that the drug companies were actually marching themselves into medical schools. And if, if I'm in medical school and I'm there to learn and I want to know everything I can to help any future patients I have, and you have people coming in going, look at how great my drug is, of course you're going to think that. And I'm the type of person that would do a lot more research, but, you know, there are people who go, oh, great, I was taught this in medical school. It should be fine. Just scary. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, what, what what's so upsetting to us, and this is why we spent a good deal of time on it in the film, was the notion of withdrawal. I mean, Angie can tell us about this, um, you know, from her personal experience, but nobody knows, very few people know how dependency causing these drugs are. When you start them, it is very, very hard to get off of them. And, um, you know, everyone talks about crack, heroin, cocaine. These drugs are as difficult to get off of, if not more. And um, in particular, the class of drugs called benzodiazepines, the anti-anxiety drugs. Yeah. And, and the fact that doctors don't tell patients that these drugs can be dependency causing, they're not taught that in school. Angie, so you had been on 18 different medications. Are you still on any of these medications right now? No. I was put on many more than that over the years, but basically for 13 years, I took every medication I could try. You know, I just wanted to feel better. And so I would go to the doctor and say, I don't feel good. I'm having more anxiety, whatever. And so one was switched for another, take it to the highest dose, come back down. Okay, that one didn't work. Let's try another one. That lasted about 13 years and I just got totally sick of it. I just felt so disillusioned that, you know, I'm doing everything these people are telling me to do and I feel worse. I don't feel good. So I had a really caring and compassionate doctor and I just said, I need to get off of this stuff. It's not working for me the way it's supposed to, you know, the way that I imagined it to work. So I, it took me almost 10 years to get off of everything and just stop trying all these combinations and feeling worse. So I'm six years off of all medication right now, but I definitely suffer. I know it's hard to believe and I wouldn't have believed it unless it happened to me, but I suffered about two straight years of extremely heavy duty withdrawal from the drugs. And then I still have like lingering neurological effects just because of taking drugs that long and all those combinations that nobody studies, that nobody knows what they really do to you long term. I've, I've definitely been disabled by that. And that has definitely, you know, impacted my life in the money sense for sure. I'm used to seeing on television, because we all know everything on TV is true, but somebody goes through 24 to 36 hours of withdrawal, and then, ta-da, we're better, it's all great, and you go to an AA meeting once a week, and you're fine. But you were saying that is not what happened with no, you. No, that couldn't be farthest from the truth, because, you know, I was taught, I'm a social worker by trade, so I have a master's in social work. I have a bachelor's in psychology. Not once was withdrawal from psychiatric drugs mentioned or discussed in any way, shape, or form. I knew what addiction was. I knew that like, if I ran out of pills early or if I was standing on the corner buying them or I was feeling euphoric when I take them, those are signs of addiction. I never had any of those signs. I was literally taking like a tiny one milligram a day, very small dose, under medical supervision, and... I did not know you could have a withdrawal effect. And really the withdrawal, when we use that word, we think addiction, but this is really your brain changes in presence of a drug. So when you, the same thing happens with coffee. You drink coffee every day, you stop drinking coffee, you're going to get headaches for probably a week and then it'll go away. The problem with psychiatric drugs though, is that we expect them to change the chemical activity in our brain. And that is what they do. 
but when you take the drug away, your brain is dependent on that chemical being there. So when the chemical is not there anymore, it has to rewire itself. It's so obvious to me as a layperson that that would happen. Unfortunately, psychiatry and, you know, medical doctors don't know about this. They don't take a care, a careful, slow approach to tapering someone off of these drugs, especially when they've been on them long term. It's not an overnight thing. It's very dangerous. I have never been more suicidal in my life coming off that drug. And it didn't even feel like it was me. Like I didn't really want to die. It was just my body just went haywire because you've been on all these drugs for 13 years and now you're on nothing. But the brain changes itself in presence of those drugs. And that is a scientific fact. And you mentioned that going through this withdrawal and you've been off of them for six years now, but because of the effects that it caused your body, you are still struggling financially. Talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about some of the financial aspects. Number one, I lost my military career because I was so disabled. You know, post-traumatic stress, a drug effect, a combination of both, probably all the trauma that I dealt with. But then, you know, I was disabled. I was put on Social Security. I've been on disability for 15 years now. I was able to complete my education with lots of accommodations, and I have a service dog that helps me. But that's 15 years of lost earnings. And if you think about me just as one individual, think about all of the people that are disabled by a mental illness, that are on tons of medication, that can barely function, that can't work a job, all that lost earned potential. What does that do to society? It's heavy duty. Not only that, but while I was going through this, you know, I felt all these crazy symptoms that didn't make any sense to me. And so I would go get an MRI, go get a CAT scan, pay a copay for this, a copay for that try alternative medicine. I'm in the parking lot of a chiropractor office right now because I, I just went to go get acupuncture and chiropractic to try to like treat my disabilities that are that are still here. So it costs a ton of money to heal and try to investigate what was wrong with me, but also losing all that potential for income all those years. And I'm still trying to get it back. Lynn, is that what you saw with a lot of the subjects in this film is financial issues not just paying for the drugs themselves while they're on it, but then having to deal with the aftermath. Absolutely. Angie was a sergeant in the army. She was medically retired. Dave Cope in the film, a graduate of MIT and was a rising star in the Navy, was retired medically. Rebecca, a young girl, lost one year of school and was hospitalized seven times. Her insurance paid for seven hospitalizations. Shalimar, uh, six years after stopping, could not, could, uh, is just beginning now to be able to work again. This, this is a huge economic thing and one that nobody talks about. It's Robert Whitaker, who really was one of the inspirations for the film, writes in um, his great, great book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. He writes about the, the, the number of Americans disabled by mental illness has nearly doubled since 1987 when Prozac was introduced. And, you know, if these drugs are so great and they're such, they're, they're so safe and efficacious, why then are our disability rates going up, uh, skyrocketing, really? And it's the economic thing is just really perplexing to me. Why? Well, you are looking at it, Heather. Thank you. Yeah. So, well, everything is driven by money. It's unfortunate, but that is the way the society works at the moment. I have yet to find any part of my life that isn't affected by money in some way. And to know that drug companies are huge influencers of 
how I would be treated if I go to a doctor, even though it's not mentioned, but the doctor is like you talk about in the film. A lot of these doctors, because of they're trying to make the most money as possible because of their company, if they're on some of the medical plans where they have to see a minimum of 25 patients a day sometimes in order to get their quotas and to make as much money as they possibly can. So they only have five minutes. And the second that they hear a trigger word for them, having trouble sleeping. Oh, I'm not feeling myself. Oh, I don't feel great. Whatever it is. Oh, great. I know what it is. Here's a pill. Get out the door. Thanks. And that's all driven, a lot of it, by the drug companies who are raking in money hand over fist right now. Yeah. The narrative right now seems to be, you know, we should not be, you know, these anti-stigma campaigns are coming on that if you are suffering, you should ask for help. And so we go to psychiatry, we go to psychology, we ask for help. But that help turns out to be lots of medication that we're not giving informed consent about. And then the studies behind that is only eight to 10, eight to 12 weeks. So patients don't know what's going to happen if I'm on this for a year or five years or 10 years. So it's just been, you know, this narrative. You know, the narrative is that this is the the narrative that the our entire society holds. It's not just any one thing. And, and this is what's going to be very hard about making change, which we hope our film is going to, to start to raise these questions. But, you know, the narrative pushes people to think that the, the responsible thing to do is to tell an entire young freshman class, if you are distressed or if you are feeling in any way not yourself, go to the doctor. Well, of course we want them to be responsible. And if they're feeling sad or not right, we want them supported. But if the doctor leads immediately to medication, is that what we want? Do, do we? Yes, of course, in, in extreme cases. Um, if someone needs medication, but should it be the go-to automatic knee-jerk reaction for a kid who is in college for the first time, feeling uncomfortable, uh, feeling even anxious, um, that, that is why we named the film Medicating Normal, because so much what Angie's talking about, so many of these um, negative feelings that we all have are human. And they will never go away. Right. They will they're, always be there. They're normal. The one subject that stuck out in my mind the most was the woman who went in because she worked a night job. And there the times that she wasn't working, she wanted to stay up a little bit later at night. Maybe to, I did, she didn't say necessarily be with friends. But, you know, when you work a night job and the rest of the world doesn't, you sometimes have to adjust your own sleep schedule if you want to actually have a social life. So she was having trouble sleeping on the nights when she didn't have to work. So she went in and say, hey, look, I'm just having problems. And the first thing the doctor did was give her a sleeping aid, sleeping medication, a prescription. And that was the worst thing for her. All she needed was a little help, not necessarily medical wise, but maybe some advice of some advice on how do I stay awake or go to sleep when I need to would be my guess. Yes. And that, that was Shalimar. And yes, her, her doctor, just what, what she's so upset about in the film is that she had, she was given absolutely no warning about what might happen. Should she choose to take this, this uh, drug that would help her sleep? It's called, a, called a benzodiazepine. And many people do take them for sleep. The problem is 
before you start a prescription, which according to Ivan, the pharmacist in the film, um, you know, they should not be prescribed more than two weeks. Many, many people are on them for a lifetime. They just take them to sleep. And that is so dangerous. And that is what happened to her. Um, and what's, what started out as working for her after about six years completely turned on her and started not working and giving her horrible side effects. And then she went in, tried to get off of them and went into withdrawal. But, um, yeah, it's, it's the informed consent that, that I think is the missing piece to the puzzle. Nobody, she had absolutely no idea what was in store for her after starting that prescription. Almost all the prescription drugs I get, it has the pamphlet in it that is written in microscopic print. Is that where the drug companies and or the doctors go, well, everything you needed to know was in that little pamphlet that you need a magnifying glass to read? Yes, most of those the small print, all of that is very, very real and true. And the drug companies do a good job about putting it out. It's just that it is so downplayed and, and patients in there, Angie can tell us, Angie, were you given a small print for each drug that you were taking? Yeah, but I mean, and just from a patient's perspective, number one, you think, oh, that won't happen to me. But number two, when I read it, I was like, okay, it says, so maybe I need to get out of bed slower in the morning. It's no big deal. But I'm telling you, the level of dizziness that I experienced, I couldn't shower standing up for two years when I came off the drug. It's not just a little mild dizziness. So it's very much downplayed. I know that they're, they've even switched some codings to where, to where, where they used to code for suicidal thoughts. Now they code it as emotional lability. So it's like a way to hide it and a way to disguise it in the data. So yes, you need to be careful that you can read that. And, and yes, those big can happen to you. That's the end of part one of how much do you know about the medications your doctor is prescribing you? Tune in next week when we go into where do we go from here? What is it that we can do as a society or just individuals to help become better informed? Thank you so much to my guest, Lynn Cunningham. You are the co-director and co-producer of Medicating Normal. And also Angie Peacock, you are a former Army sergeant and one of the subjects of the film, Medicating Normal, which again can be seen on PBS or streamed on the PBS app. So hopefully everybody will go there and watch because it was eye-opening for me. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for continuing the dialogue. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can email me with any questions or topics you want to hear about at hkelly at ksl.com. That's h-k-e-l-l-y at ksl.com. And because this is Money Making Sense, you can subscribe for free on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for being a Money Making Sense listener. Follow your common sense on the social media, Money Making Sense, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.